Welcome to Real Talk with Life After Grief, Chris, where we talk about relevant issues as it relates to individuals in grief as they navigate finances and the advisors who help them. We help clients in grief navigate financial matters. We also teach advisors how to emotionally and financially work with clients in grief through an unparalleled process. This week's episode is sponsored by Life After Grief Financial Planning and Life After Grief Consulting. Hello and welcome to another episode of Real Talk with Life After Grief, Chris. In this episode, we're going to be talking about child loss and grief. And I'm just going to warn you up front, this is going to be a little bit harder and I may be a little bit more disjointed than my previous episodes due to the nature of the content of this episode and how much it greatly affected myself and my wife, frankly. In June of 2012, I was in Montana, Billings, Montana, to be very specific. I was visiting a buddy. His family was here, and he was going to be alone. He wanted me to come up and hang out with them and see the Great West. And very distinctly, I was in his basement, and he was upstairs. I was getting myself ready for the day, and I was looking out of the window And I was noticing how nice it was outside and how different it was from, you know, any city that I've really ever been to and specifically Orlando. And I got a call and it was my wife and she was calling to tell me that we were pregnant, not with one baby, but with two babies. You can imagine how ecstatic and how much I was looking forward to life after grief. I felt that we finally got a break after everything that was happening or it had happened to us, I finally felt that we were getting a break. I was half wrong and I was half correct. And as we kind of go through this, I'm going to explain as to why I felt that way or why I know that was the case. If you know anything about twins, that means the pregnancy is going to be high risk just to the nature of it. So over the next several months, we were at the baby doctor about every week or so getting checkups and such because of the risk of the pregnancy. And then I also consciously made the decision before we got pregnant that I was going to be the best father possible. I knew I was going to give up things and I just wanted to be there. I wanted to be a great dad and I was really looking forward to this. And my decision was based on my own experiences growing up, my relationship with my father, my mother, my relationship with my brother experiences that I had with money and then any opportunities that I received, you know, along the way and any mentors that were very influential in my life. I knew that these young boys that would turn into men were going to be a complete reflection of me. And I wanted to be there. I wanted to give them all the tools that I had been afforded to in my life. I also made the decision to forego a major job opportunity because I wanted to make sure I was fully engaged and available during the pregnancy. I wanted to make sure that there was nothing else clouding my ability to be there for my sons and for my wife. So we made it to week 15. We had no major issues. That was drastically about to change. At week 16, my wife's water broke. And we rushed to the hospital and the whole situation was a terrible experience and the worst came out of me. 
I'm usually pretty calm and collected, but if anyone knows me and it affects my family, I am going to react. And at that time, I felt that we weren't getting the proper treatment that we should have been getting. So I called in the reinforcements. My wife and I um, had a disagreement about that, but I felt helpless. Like I said, I called in the reinforcements and the reinforcements, meaning my contacts and friends in the medical field. The result was that we were transferred from the ER to the maternal unit in a different location. That was ultimately where we needed to be. I couldn't articulate that at the time. I just knew what I was seeing wasn't going right. In technical terms, baby A's amniotic fluid was depleted and the likelihood of a successful pregnancy was slim to none. Baby B was also in danger. And I use baby A and baby B because those were the terms that the hospital kind of labeled the baby so we could tell them apart at the time. And this news, as you can imagine, was daunting that the likelihood of a successful pregnancy of not one but two babies was not going to, you know, come to fruition in regards to the success. We were also told that if the pregnancy went to term, there would be a high likelihood of mental and physical defects. We were also told that we may want to consider aborting the pregnancy. At that point, I was thinking of the long-term implications, especially in light of my grieving past. I leaned on my wife for what she wanted to do as I was at a loss. And she simply said that we were going to turn. She was completely relying on her body to decide the best outcome for the situation. And I just put my arms up. And behind the scenes, you know, my analytical mind, I was copiously researching what the doctors told us. And it was true. I also reached out to a maternal doctor whom I used to work with professionally who concurred on our current doctor's prognosis. He also told me that our doctor was one of the best in the business. So that at least brought me some calm in you know the storm that we were working with one of the best available. Two weeks later, at week 18, we had another episode in which baby A began to present himself. I rushed to take my wife to the hospital yet again. The end result was that Christopher Clorse was born and did not survive, and he was baby A. There was a lot that happened between the time I took Amory to the hospital. You can imagine my thoughts and feelings during this process. In this experience, like many others before, we had to embrace being alone and that we had no one to lean on who had a similar experience. That experience uh, was something that I had grown accustomed to being used to uh, with nobody to really go to. We had to make a quick decision not to have a formal ceremony for Christopher as our complete attention was turned on to baby B, who was Elias, to ensure he was healthy and he stayed put. I've carried some guilt based on that decision, but we were put in a predicament that we had a viable son who had an opportunity to live. And looking back, I still believe that that was the best decision that we made. I'm going to take a sidebar here. I'm going to talk about some of the other things that were going on during that time. It was essentially two or three days in the hospital. You know, again, talked about the decision not to have a formal ceremony with Christopher because we had to completely focus on Elias. I left the hospital. 
you know, after I got Amory there, I had to gather some things for myself because based on the first hospital stay, I thought we were going to be here for a long time. And so I had to gather some things to position myself to be able to be at the hospital and be able to take care of things. When I came back to the hospital later that evening, I was on the road getting ready to turn to get to the hospital. And there was a gentleman that was as frantic as I was, but he was an older gentleman and he was backing up onto the street and he ended up backing into me. And this is all going on during this process. I'm trying to get back to the hospital. He got out of the car and he said, I'm, I'm very sorry. My daughter is in the hospital. I'm not sure what's going on and I'm frantic. We exchanged information and he said, I will call my insurance company tomorrow morning and, you know, we'll get this taken care of. I took him at face value and I felt as bad as my situation was, I felt that his situation, if I could even say this, was even more daunting um, based on, you know, what he initially told me. So I used a little bit of compassion that I had and I said, you know, God bless and I hope everything works out and we went our separate ways. The next morning, I believe his insurance company called me and um, said that we're going to fix your car. And that was a blessing, you know, in a bad situation. Also, there was a financial implication, you know, kind of going on in my mind. I'm the financial person. And... I figured out that Amory would probably have to be on bed rest for the remainder of the pregnancy. So from 18 weeks on, we really learned how short-term and long-term disability really work. We also learned that you have to fight for your rights when it comes to disability insurance. I can assure you that my financial planning really worked out in our favor in this situation. We did a lot of planning in advance. And you never think that you're going to have to use short-term or long-term disability, but I can tell you that we had to use it and it greatly worked out for us being a young couple. So those are some of the sidebar things that kind of happened and, you know, kind of planning for and, you know, looking for in a situation, you know, such as this. So I'm going to get back to baby B now. We have named baby B who is Elias. So we were on pens and needles for the next 36 hours after Christopher was born. The chances of survival dramatically increase if Elias was not prematurely delivered within 36 hours of his brother. With the grace of God, we passed all of the necessary milestones. The doctor also recommended and performed a medical procedure to ensure that Eli was not born before 37 weeks. And... Eli didn't want to go anywhere. He was born at 41 weeks. This was the first time in a long time that I was assured that our life after grief had finally began. So I'm pausing because that was a, a lot of emotion. And, um, you know, two years later, my other son, Gideon, was born. My third son, his pregnancy went off without a hitch, and I believe he was late as well. Both boys were very comfortable, you know, in the womb. After all of that transpired, in the back of my mind, uh, I knew that we were going to have to tell the boys at some point about their brother Christopher. 
And we were going to have to go into details in regards to why we didn't have a formal ceremony or Christopher and, you know, just a, a lot of things. And since I've, you know, built my practice, a lot of people know about my journey through grief. And what I did not want to happen was that my kids were caught off guard by t- someone saying to them, we know that you have a brother. So Anne-Marie and I decided and uh, during, excuse me, the Christmas of 2020, when we were both home for some dedicated time, we were going to tell the boys about their brother. As you can imagine, I was very apprehensive. I didn't really sleep before we told them. We went downstairs in our house, sat down and said, boys, um, we want to know that sh- you have a brother. And their reaction was why didn't you tell us earlier? They also asked to see pictures of Christopher and they asked a lot of questions. They asked why we didn't bury him. They asked where he went and they had tons of questions. The thing that stuck out in my mind was why didn't mom and dad tell them earlier? And we went in, you know, to detail, we wanted to make sure that you guys were ready and understood. And we had to talk about Christopher was Eli's twin and they, you know, they both have a guardian angel in heaven and the boys really took this very, very well. They both cried. They were very sad, but overwhelmingly now we talk about Christopher. We laugh about him and, you know, talk about, you know, how he would have looked and a lot of, a lot of good has come out of this and the boys, They talk about their brother at school. They talk about their brother, you know, with friends and family. And I, you know, had to let the family know that we told the boys. It was a healing sense for Anne-Marie and I. Before that point, I didn't really know how my wife grieved about the situation. And I don't think she knew how I grieved during the situation. And telling the kids brought a lot of healing to my wife and I. And it brought things full circle. You know, now everything is out in the open. And so we can, you know, enjoy and then, you know, have Christopher as part of our Christmas tradition and our Thanksgiving tradition and, you know, pray to him as well. Ooh, that was a lot. That was um, one of my harder podcasts. But, um, you know, I, I like to give some clarity into my situation and to, you know, things that have gone on and the financial impact, you know, it, it really is real. That situation wasn't cheap by any stretch of imagination. And, you know, good thing that we had the proper resources, meaning insurance in place. And for an advisor, I just shared how, you know, our experience was going through short-term and long-term disability and how difficult that was. And I would, you know, abdicate for a client to completely rely on their advisor if there's something that goes on in that regard. Uh, That can go a long way. And that's, you know, sometimes that can be outside of the hard and fast dynamics of an advisor-client relationship. And I hope my experience, you know, can help anyone else. I have had a, um, you know, few folks that I've known near and dear to me have had some traumatic experiences with children of their own. And I appreciate you listening and thank you. 
And as always, please feel free to share this podcast with any friends, family members, or colleagues. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you are a client and are looking to work directly with me, Chris, and or my firm, head on over to Life After Grief FP. That is Life After Grief FP. The FP is for financial planning.com. If you are an advisor looking to emotionally and financially work with your client in grief, or if you are a client looking to get your advisor's head in the game, head on over to lifeaftergriefconsulting.com. That is lifeaftergriefconsulting.com. Any information referenced in this week's podcast will be located here in the podcast section. And as always, please feel free to share this week's podcast with any friend, family member, or colleague. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the next episode.